0: Well, good morning, and thank you again for joining us as we study God's Word together. My name is Darren Smith, Senior Pastor at Tower View Baptist Church, and it's good to have you with us this morning. We've been doing this now, I think this is our 10th or 11th time doing this uh, and the more formal recording so this will actually be our last time so we just want to before we get started we've said this hopefully most weeks but we want to especially say thank you to our sister seminary just down 10 minutes down the road from our church midwestern baptist and so we're so grateful uh, for the opportunity to be able to partner with them during this time now you all have been blessed watching this and we really look forward to hearing how god has used us so super Grateful for that. Well, I invite your attention this morning as we continue our study to the book of James. We're now in James chapter 5 with today's sermon titled, Street Level Faith. Uh, Can't you just leave my stuff alone, Lord? Can't you just leave my stuff alone, Lord. And we'll get into the last chapter of James as we've been through this COVID period. We've got about three weeks left. I'll be preaching this week, uh, and then next week, during July 4th weekend, Pastor Nelson will be preaching, and I'll wrap things up the uh, week after the, the the holiday on July the 12th. And after that, we're going to make our way back to the Old Testament, to the Psalms, as we had planned earlier this year, and uh, do that through uh, probably about mid-September uh, into early October. So James chapter 5, verses 1 to six. Here's God's word this morning. James writes this, he says, come now you rich weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire for you have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, verse 4, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence, and you have fattened your hearts for a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Church, let's pray, and if you're you're joining us and you're watching this maybe for the first time, if if you've joined us for numerous times, again, thank you so much. Uh, We want you to know that there is a God who loves you, there is a God who cares for you, Uh, but we pray that as you listen that the the gospel message is clear to you as well. Let's pray together. Father, as we read your word this morning, we know uh, these words are always weighty. All Scripture is, Father, even verses we know so well. So Lord, as we come before your word this morning, we don't put ourselves above it. We don't put ourselves in in, in authority over it. But Lord, we recognize that in in the the operation of your spirit, working through the lives of men, that you gave us this authoritative word to be over us, Lord, to guide us and direct us. We don't worship the Bible for sure, but Father, we worship you, the God of the Bible, who provided these words for us today. Father, I pray especially during these times as people are dealing, even in our own church, with job loss or, or less hours or, or things that are impacting their finances, that Father, you would guard us against this other extreme, the, the hoarding of wealth, the uh, defrauding of those who may not have the advantages that many of us have. Father, as we do this, we don't just do this again to be moral people. We don't do this to be the Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts of the Tower View Baptist Church. We do this, Lord, to make the gospel even clearer in our own lives by your grace and spirit, that others may see and know the truth we have found in the risen Jesus, that he loved us so much he gave his life for us. Father, may you be lifted high as we study today. We pray this as always in the name of your Son, our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, a long time ago, a woman who traveled abroad without her husband, and and a long time ago, we're talking late 1800s, early 1900s, she got to Paris and found a famous bracelet that she'd always wanted to buy. It was handcrafted there in Paris, and she was so excited that she sent a wire back home. She sent a telegraph back home. That dates the story. She said to her husband, I I found this beautiful bracelet, the one I've been looking for my entire life. It only cost $7,500. Do you think I can buy it? Now, of course, $7,500 back then would be probably in the tens of thousands today. Her husband got the wire and, 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 and wired back a short but firm reply. He said, no, comma, price is too high. And he signed his name and sent it off and considered it done. But in the transmission, the comma was left out and the message read instead, no, price too high. And when his wife got it in Paris, she was so thrilled that she bought this bracelet. But omitting that comma, no comma, almost put that guy into a coma. Look, details matter. And I think that's the the point of that passage. And so if a missing comma can be so costly, if something so intricate is just curving a little letter or a little punctuation mark around can be so intricate, how much more is it to be costly to not understand a relationship that seems so easy between a Christian and his money or her money that we need to study today. No church, this isn't some ploy to give to the church. You, you have done that faithfully. Thank you. Uh, we shared before, but so many churches, our size and other sizes, would 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 kill, to use the phrase, to give what you all have given. Thank you for blessing us and keeping the ministry afloat and providing for future opportunities. But Jesus said it clearly in Matthew 6, 24, you cannot serve God and money. And that is not a small detail. How do you serve money? You serve it by feeling and thinking and acting to get as much money and pleasure as possible. But how do you serve God? You serve it by feeling and thinking and acting to get as much of God and his pleasures as possible. You know, Proverbs eleven twenty eight 28 makes it very clear. It says, whoever trusts in riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. As we know, church, abundant life is not found in money or stuff or health or wealth or any of those things. But it's given what in what Christ was given. God's not holding out on you. In fact, He has everything given to you. But you need to understand that relationship. Those details are so important. And if we don't continually ask God to reshape our habits about money and its understanding, we're going to end up idolizing it. I mean, think about this. How can you be a better conduit for the kingdom of God in these days? How can the the, the small accumulation of of money you have be used to advance not only the needs that you have, but also the kingdom of God? I mean, are are you really willing to take an honest look at your spending? Are you already becoming defensive, perhaps, as you hear these words and justifying certain areas of your finances? Why can we be transparent in some areas, and fearless in some areas, but when it comes to this topic of money, we are so scared, and James is going to talk about that today, and I'm using a quote for the big idea today. We don't often do this. The big idea is just a summary of the sermon, but it comes from a book called Respectable Sins by Jerry Bridges. Jerry had passed on a few years back, but he said this. He said in that book, quote, if money wins out in our lives, it is not God, but we who lose. If money wins out in our lives, it is not God, but we who lose. Friends, do you know that Christ discussed money more than he did heaven and even hell? And that's saying a lot because we need to remind ourselves that we should be grateful for what we're given. We should tell ourselves uh, that we don't deserve all these things. We should never stop being satisfied with what God has given, but we should not be unsatisfied with what he's given either. We have needs, for sure, but the word need is just one of the most poorly and overused words in our culture today. The majority of what people tell ourselves or tell each other that we need, we actually don't need. And 2 Peter 1.3 reminds us that he's given us everything for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us. And we also need to guard against envy. Envious people are always taking account, they're always comparing They're always consistently placing on their they have but I don't have list. Invious people regularly feel they've been given a bad deal, so they justify spending in an ungodly way or or holding back in an ungodly way to settle the score they feel is theirs for the taking. So as we study this in James, this isn't just some one-off section. James is continuing to hammer home practical street-level faith. And now he gets into our pocketbooks or our bank accounts or apps, or whatever you have. And he reminds us that financial maturity requires a powerful grace that only God can give. And when it comes to our money, church, our hearts will rest and only be contented when they have been freed and protected by that same amazing grace. So this morning, three things from James 5 through 6. He tells us three elements of how mishandling money, mishandling wealth, can cause trouble. If you do this wrongly, you will be live senselessly. Verses one to three, you'll be short sighted, and you will be live self centeredly, senselessly, short sightedly, and self centeredly. Say that five times fast. But I want to remind you, as we did last week, that James, of course, as we've we've studied the last several weeks, is writing to scattered Christians, mainly those Jewish Christians. He's used the word brothers, delightfully, brothers and sisters, several times. But in the last couple sections, starting in James chapter 4, verse 13, all the way down here in chapter 5, verse 1, you do not see the word brothers. You do not see the Greek word adelphoi, brothers or sisters. He's prophetically speaking now to those who are are rich, those who in that day are, are those who had a lot of power, a lot of prestige, a lot of money, a lot of wealth. And he's telling these Jewish Christians who he knows are in the faith, do not be like them. Do not seek the things they seek and try to run with them as they run, but instead seek after your Savior because there's coming a day where they will give account, as you will, Christian, but they will give a special account for how they've handled these things. Let's get into it this morning. The first thing, the mishandling of money or wealth will cause you to live senselessly. Notice verse 1. He tells them that, remember, judgment is coming. He says, come now, you rich Weep and howl, or weep and wail for the miseries that are coming upon you. Now, again, James's readers are probably mostly poor, as we see in Acts 6, with the, with the widows and, and, and those Christians who came to be. They were just merely peasants in the Roman uh, Empire. But, but they had to ask that question, why be righteous? Why do these things, James? If, if I only had more money, if I only had more power, then my life would be better. And James's answer to that is because judgment is ahead. James is forcibly making the point that wealth is temporary and judgment and eternity are coming up on the next exit. So to pursue wealth to the neglect of pursuing God or to trust in wealth or money as a solution to your deepest needs, he says, is sheer folly. As Jesus pointedly said in Luke 16:9, the wealth of the unrighteous will fail. Therefore, we must use it wisely in light of the reality of eternity. So the words translated weep and wail in verse 1 could also be translated shriek. Not shrek, that green guy who walked around 10, 15 years ago in movies, but shriek. You you, you scream out like when you're scared out of your mind or you, you see something in the dark or someone jumps out of a closet to scare you. Shriek, you wail. And these words describe the kind of misery that can't be contained and must be exploded through the lips. In modern terms, you could say it this way. If you could see the misery that's awaiting for you right now, you would shriek like someone at a haunted house in in, in the Halloween time. Church, it's a reminder to us, that as Romans 14, 12 tells us, that each of us will give an account of himself to God or herself to God. We are going to report in. How we live now will matter forever. And a moment is soon coming when each of us will report in on how we stewarded the things God has given us, especially the money and wealth that we have. I won't be able to blame you and you won't be able to blame me. This is sobering. It's, it's dignifying in some sense. But each of us, you will have the full attention of your creator, the thrice holy God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the triune God. And so I have to ask the question I had to ask myself. Have I wept? Have you wept more over your economic loss during this COVID pandemic time and for those, perhaps, who have simply passed away or those souls who don't know Jesus who will be in hell forever with him. Now, I want to just be clear here. The Bible does not say having wealth or having money or having possessions or taking care of your family or any of those things is bad. In fact, that is commanded of us. And Paul says that he who does not take care of his own family is worse than an unbeliever. It's, it's a calling of us to take care of the things we have. But what he is saying, and I think what we take away from this, is that those are not our trust. Our hearts, even in the smallest frame, if they're longing for those things, are misdirected from the track God has for us. So he says, remember the judgment. Don't live senselessly. Second point, first main point here. He says, remember the judgment is crystal clear. Look at verse 2. He says, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Can't lay it out any clearer. In James' time, there would have been three main indicators of wealth. And he he uses three terms here to point to the nature of each. First, if you were wealthy in James' day, you had a lot of food. You had a lot of grains stored up. You know, Jesus gave that parable, didn't he, about the man who stored all the riches of his food and intake and the grains and the silos. And he said, This day I'll, I'll get this day that man will have to give his life up. And he took him away. You would store this, of course, in large bins or silos, but James says your riches have rotted. That, that that you worked hard to plant and harvest is falling away. That's the first thing that riches came to be in his day. The second was, that's crystal clear, was clothing. In a world where most of the people only had clothes on their back, literally at times, it was a sign of wealth to have more than one change of clothes. And the Apostle Paul could claim, as he did in Acts 20, that he coveted no man's money or clothes. And James echoes here Jesus who warned that clothes are subject to the ruin of moths; They're subject to the ruin of moths. And so that's, of course, why we have, and I remember going in my grandparents' attic, those, those stinky uh, but necessary thing called mothballs. You put them in places because it keeps those things out that would like to nibble, And would like to eat and would like to take away heirlooms, precious memories, old clothes. Because that's what they do. But for the rich, especially here, he's speaking generally and specifically to non-Christians. He says, your food will pass away. All that you've stored up, all that you've shown other people your prestige through will pass away. And finally, he says, the third indicator of wealth is gold and silver. And James knew, of course, these metals are not subject to rust. I looked this up, just curiosity. You know, gold and silver never really rust. That's why they're so so uh, uh, liked and, and sought after, of course. But he's using irony here, James, is to make a point. When God brings judgment, even these precious metals, silver and gold will go away, and they will be corroded. They will be rust-filled. In what good were all the gold and silver of the day when in 8070, when Titus, the Roman general, destroyed Jerusalem and slaughtered a million Jews, many of which fit the description of our passage here this morning. Christian, listening to this, can I just speak to you for a second? Based on James 5.2, how clear and how vivid is your assurance that you're walking with God in this area? I mean, have you trusted more things of this world? Have you invested in things to the point where you can't clearly see the line between what God requires of you to take care of your needs and what God has said in this passage that is sin? Pray for that wisdom. Seek that wisdom. And non-Christian, can I just speak to you for a second too? Again, thank you so much for watching. Whether you're watching this the day we put it up on YouTube and Facebook or you're watching this weeks, months later, so glad you joined us. But have you gained the whole world and forfeited your soul? Have you sought to be the best of the best of the best so that you can get this and get that and get this and get that? When does it end? It never does. But for us Christians, the greatest hope that we have is what Psalm 130 verse 3 says, non-Christian friend. Lord, if you ever kept a record of sins, who, Lord, could ever survive? Now, Christian, we believe that Jesus, who's fully God and fully man, has the only innate ability, being being God and coming to this earth and dying for our sins and taking the wrath and rising again from the dead. We believe that no matter what we secure in this world, it will all literally pass away. It'll be rotted, it'll be moth-filled, it'll corrode. And what we know is that we know Christ, not because we are without sin, but because we believe that He's forgiven us of our sin, and that is the greatest wealth that we have. doesn't mean Christians don't fall in this trap at times. Of course we do. So many ministries and ministers and pastors have sought wealth instead of seeking the growth of God's kingdom and have fallen because of that. But non-Christian, let me tell you, the greatest thing you have today is to hear this. God indeed does love you. He indeed gave his life for you, but you need to recognize that you have sinned, you've fallen short of his glory, and the only way to be restored to him is to repent and believe the gospel. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's what he tells us. So we're still in the first main point here. I want to make that clear that the mishandling of wealth causes you to live senselessly, You, there's a judgment coming, it's crystal clear. And in verse 3 here, you'll see that the judgment is crushing. The judgment is crushing. And I'm going to just speak to that a little bit more about the the gold and the silver. Isaiah 51.8, he says, the moth and the worm will destroy. But Jesus tells us in Matthew 6.20 that he says, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in. And steal The ungodly rich of this passage and throughout the centuries mistakenly think they're relieving themselves and their families from hardships through their wealth and possessions. That's happened in our generation. Uh, The baby boomer generation was the the sons and daughters of the greatest generation. The World War II, the Depression era folks, and they gave to our generation, which we're giving to the next. And it just goes down because we don't want to have something that that we don't want our kids not to have something we didn't have or, or, or vice versa there. But James says that you're storing up misery and hardship in the final judgment if that is your trust. The very thing that you trust in for comfort now will result in final ruin later. And the Bible commands us to provide, again, the necessities. And there's nothing wrong with living comfortably. Nothing wrong with buying drapes for your windows or, or, or whatever else. But we can do much more to serve the Lord when life is not a constant struggle just to survive. I mean, modern labor-saving devices, I mean, where would we be without washing machines and dishwashers and lawnmowers and even even cars and and, and curse that they sometimes are to us? In in trying to free up time, they take time. But James is warning that it's possible to enjoy the comforts of life without God. but but, But if we fall into that, these comforts become our snare. And these rich people had so much stuff, it was starting to rot in storage. And what good is grain in silos when you go to get it and it's full of mold? What good's a change of clothes if it's just moth eaten in your closet or your attic? And what good is a bank vault full of jewels if you're afraid to wear them or fear of being robbed uh, because of them? And church, as we close this first point, I just want to remind you, you need to pray for your need and not your greed. You to, to put a very simple phrase out there. Pray for your need and not your greed. Jesus said, be on guard, Luke 12, 15, against all kinds of greed. A a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. You know, a friend of mine has insightfully observed that there are three accepted sins within the church of America, and I think it's very true. Of course, they're alliterated. They're gossip, number one, they're gluttony, and they're greed. Gossip, gluttony, and greed. Friends, we need to be on guard pray for whatever need you have. Pastor Nelson is going to get into that a little bit next week, and we'll get there in a couple weeks. Uh, The prayer of a righteous man availeth much, uh, James 5.16, but we need to pray for our need. Church, we need to pray for our need. We need to pray that we reach our neighborhood. That's a need. We need to pray for families in our church who are economically challenged, and we're coming alongside them, and thank you for giving to that support. We need to pray that we grow spiritually, but we don't need to pray for things that don't impact God's kingdom, and in snare us to things that keep us away from being an active part of that kingdom. Where the balance point is, I cannot tell you. But I will say that not many of us here in America live on the lean side. Often behind our hoarding, and when there's shows that way, if you pop on Amazon Prime, there's a show, at least on ours, that pops up and says hoarders. You know, it's been out for years. But often behind our hoarding is either the sin of greed, Or the lack of trust that God is able to provide for our future needs. We live needlessly when we mishandle the wealth and the money. Don't spend your life collecting junk that you never need or use. Give it away. Look, I know there's people who have psychological issues with that, and and that's not the point I'm trying to make. We need to pray for those folks to be unsnared from that. But, Christian, generally speaking, Is your life contained by what you have, what you hope you have, what you think you could have, or what you think you deserve that you you don't have? Or is it consumed by a greater passion for God and His Word and everything else? Look, I will be the first to admit, church, that you know me, I love running. I could get every running gadget out there, every new pair of shoes if I wanted to, and I have to be very careful with that. But as I studied this week, I had to pray, Lord, is, you know, even as thoughts pass through my mind and those issues and things, Lord, I don't need that. Help me to give more faithfully to your kingdom. It's a real struggle, especially during COVID time. But may God be glorified in giving us wisdom to where that, that balance point is. Number two, the mishandling of wealth, first off, was will cause us to live uh, senselessly, it'll it'll be secondly, and this is the shorter of the three points, it'll cause us to live short-sightedly, short-sightedly look at the uh, end of verse 3, he goes on to say in verse 3, he says your silver and gold excuse me, your silver and gold are corroded and, and, and here it is, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat up your flesh like fire, that's a, that's a phrase that'll wake you up, at least I hope it will he says, remember what's impending. He says, and, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and your, you, and, and will eat your f- flesh like fire. Since the misuse of wealth will bring a person into horrible judgment, into hell, and make him weep and wail and howl and shriek in misery, that's verse 1, we should make sure that we do not profess to know God, but deny Him by our ungodly use of wealth, as Titus 1.16 says. Although there are far more dangers uh, than James lists here, here are the four that he lists. He says, don't hoard, verses 2 to 3. He says, don't cheat people out of money, verse 4. He says, don't live in luxury while disregarding the needs of others. And we saw that in chapter 2, didn't we? If there's a a poor person who comes in your church, but you focus on that rich person, uh, you've done what James says not to do in the Holy Word. And finally, he says, don't hurt innocent people for the sake of gain, verse 6, chapter 5. And there seems to be a progression here, starting at the end of verse 3, from the least to the worst. And he's yielding to what may seem like a small sin always exposes us to worse sins. In the early stages, some sins seem horrific and impossible for us to commit. But the more we do it, the more it becomes routine, the more it becomes acceptable, and the more it becomes okay because we don't see the thunder and the lightning bolts necessarily telling us to stop. But if we yield to the seemingly harmless sins, pretty soon we'll find ourselves excusing it or justifying it, what formerly seemed impossible, that, hey, I would never do that. Friends, I think the the takeaway is, as he talks about the immediacy of this judgment, especially for these rich folks he's prophetically warning against, the non-Christians, is our rest, our hope, and our contentment are found when you live each day. When I live each day, church, Tower View, as we live each day in situations with eternity in view. I mean, have you thought about this COVID period? It's hard to think past it, isn't it? My wife and I, even this morning, we're just talking about how we're setting up another appointment for our son. It's hard to believe it's already been three months. It seems like an eternity ago, but it's already been three months. How quickly time flies, even in a pandemic. But live with eternity in view. And no, this is not all there is. Know that the demands of today are not the final destination. Know the things that seem so important for you to use your wealth and your money on today will really have no value in eternity. Life is short and uncertain. We saw that last week, James 4, 13 through 17. So Christian, meet death head on at the very center of God's will. Live for eternity. Every moment matters. Don't waste a drop of it. Know the judgment is coming and know especially you will give an account. I will give an account. Church, we will give an account for how we've managed the wealth given to us. And not just money. I keep saying that. But every resource God has stewarded us, who He's, he's lent to us to manage, will be under account and examination. And he says, remember what's important. He says, you've laid up treasure in the last days. You've laid up treasure in the last days. Now, what does that mean? Now, I think in the context of chapter 5, uh, start, the end of verse 3 here, he's saying, especially to these non-Christian rich people, he's, he's warning, he, he's telling him, you've laid up treasures in the last day. He's saying, look, you've been fattened for the day of slaughter. That's kind of pulling from verse 5 too. But years ago, it's been several years ago, I've had this in my files for a while, There was a service being offered to the rich back in the early 90s and 80s. Since bank deposits were hard to get to, uh, because banker hours are 8 to 5, Monday through Friday, most of them, it it was something that many stores sprung up of how to meet that demand. And what they would do is they would offer 24-hour access to your safe deposit box so you could access your jewels and treasures at any kind. And one company offered mirrored privacy booths where you could inspect your precious possessions without anyone else seeing them, all for a $3,000 annual fee uh, for only uh, a rent of a three-foot box. Crazy stuff. But friends, we need to remember what is important. Are we hiding, and this is the opposite of this, are we hiding away our wealth to the point where we're allowing it to be like these people who secretly pay for a private booth so they can kind of run that special (laughs) necklace through their hands so they feel it, even though they never wear it out in public? I mean, how many athletes do you hear about get robbed these days, especially you guys and many of us who watch ESPN all the time? You know, you hear about an athlete who lost like a half a million dollars in jewelry when he got robbed. it's terrible. It's sad. It's wrong. That happened. But those things are so temporary. And Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 3 that our lives are either going to be built with wood, hay, and stubble, or they're going to be built with gold, silver, and jewels. Friend, what we are working on today is what will stand in eternity for tomorrow. And church, this is especially sobering for us as your pastors, because we are going to give an account not only for how we've stewarded our lives and our families, but we're going to give an account for the church. Everything that passes through, we give an account of every conversation, every member who comes in and out, every you know sermon preached. James chapter 3 verse 1, not everyone should presume to be brothers or teachers, my brothers, because they will be held under stricter judgment. This gets really serious. And when he says at the end of verse 3 that you have laid up treasures in these last days, he's specifically saying to the rich people, you have already shown your cards. You have shown us that you are going to be yeah, judge in a strict way but Christian, the general application from that context is simply this: are you living for eternity in such a way that when you get on that last day you are ready to see your savior look let's be clear here good theology tells us that if you are truly saved, God's going to hold you in that day uh, you know we don't all we can get in the debates on this we don't know Christian how it's going to all shake you how you know w- will somebody get a hundred crowns and someone gets 80 crowns like I don't know. But one thing I do know is this, is that the scripture is replete with this. Either you're storing up for judgment or you're storing for eternity the riches of the kingdom of God. Which are you doing? We've seen the mishandling of wealth will cause you to live senselessly, verses 1 to 3. Uh, the first part of verse 3. Secondly, the mishandling of wealth will cause you to live will cause you to live short-sightedly, the end of verse 3. And finally, the last point here, the mishandling of wealth will cause you to live self-centeredly, self-centeredly, verses 4 to 6. He tells us in verse 4, he says, Remember to live straightforwardly. Look at verse 4. He says very clearly, Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the Lord of hosts. Friends, we should be careful not to cheat people out of money. Now, for many of you watching this, I know in our church, we don't have a lot of business owners or things like that. But this could be any relationship. This could be any context. James was denouncing specifically wealthy landowners that were cheating their laborers out of their hard-earned wages. Whether they were not paying them in full uh, or, or, or cheating them on the pretext that they would not... Uh, had not fulfilled their quotas, it It's kind of like Pharaoh did when he said, yeah, oh, you guys didn't make enough or do that sort of thing. We really don't know. But it was a common enough problem to be mentioned several times in the Scriptures. Leviticus 19.13 says, You shall not oppress your neighbor nor rob him. The wages of a hired man are not to remain with you all night until morning. Often in that economy, day laborers got paid by the day. And to withhold some of those on false pretenses would literally be to rob the worker and by extension his family of their daily bread, their daily ration. And you know, most of us are not in that position of paying wages to workers, but if we are, we should be generous and fair. You pray for employers during this time where they are having to make cuts and, and cutbacks in several areas where this could be a temptation. Christian, especially pray for Christian around the world where this could be a temptation to do simply to save some money. But if we're not, the principle still applies that it's always wrong to cheat others for our financial gain. And so, this he says, live straightforwardly. Don't hide things. Don't, don't underhandedly do things. Don't try to be shady in your dealings. Why? Because he says, the cries of the harvesters, the cries of those people have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. It's a very interesting phrase here. James calls the God of heaven, just like Paul does in 2 Timothy 4, when he calls Timothy and under the account, he says uh, he tells Timothy there to, to preach because God is watching. And here he says, don't do this, live straightforwardly. Don't live self-centeredly, live straightforwardly because the Lord of hosts has reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Doesn't that remind you of Exodus chapter 2? Verse 20, where God said he he, he understood, he saw, and he knew the plight of Israel. And so too here, God's ears are always open. God neither slumbers, God neither sleeps. He's omniscient, he knows all things, he's omnipresent, he's everywhere, he's omnipotent, he's all-powerful. And because of that, he calls us to live transparently, with integrity, with honesty, especially in how we treat others in the pay that we give them. And friends, this is why these two, there are at least two simple faith lessons, two simple applications of this, I think, that are here. We need to stay low as a church, and we need to stick together. We need to stay low before the Lord and stick together with one another. But if, but if we give one another up, we won't make it out of this together, or we won't make it out of it the way we should. What we're learning is this, is that the Lord of the church demands us, of us all integrity of the heart. Integrity when no one is watching, he's willing for us. He's willing for his own cause to be embarrassed, if need be, for our integrity to be restored. But he doesn't need us. He isn't impressed by us. As God, the Lord of hosts, he can replace us. And our only future is integrity. Our only future is to be honest. So let's live straightforwardly, especially in our relation to wealth. And I, I, I just want to say a word here as as one of the staff members. We are so grateful, church, how you take care of us. You don't. You know even this morning reading some some Facebook posts, from public Facebook posts, from other friends who took screenshots without names of other pastors who said, "You know, my church kicked me out. They didn't even pay me. They just locked the doors and said, "Go to work, work from home, but we're not going to pay you. Church, I thank you for following this verse. Thank you for living straightforwardly, not self-centeredly. You've taken care of us even in a very difficult time. May God be blessed as we do that together as we stay low as we seek after God and be humble ourselves before him but as we stick together and live straightforwardly in in front of him and others. He says in verse 5, though, he says, don't live self-sufficiently, so live straightforwardly. He says also in verse 5, live sufficiently, live sufficiently. Notice verse 5 here. He says, you've lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence, and you've fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You know, Jesus' story of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16, 19-31 may be behind James' words here. In that story, you may recall, the rich man lived in splendor while Lazarus was covered with sores. He longed to be fed for the crumbs from the rich man's table. But after death, their roles were reversed. The rich man was in the agony in the flames of literal conscious hell, whereas Lazarus was comfortably in in what we know as Abraham's bosom, in the presence of God. And the point of the story was not that all rich people go to hell and that all poor people go to heaven. That that theology is bad theology, by the way. But the Bible is clear that there are godly rich people and there are ungodly poor people. Salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. But the rich man's selfish indulgence and lack of compassion to the poor reflected his godless, selfish focus in life. He didn't live sufficiently, he lived extravagantly. And James's indictment of fattening their hearts in the day of slaughter points to the coming judgment. Again, that's, that's where we've been. And like unreasoning unreasoning cows, if you've been around a cow before on a farm or what have you, they just go on fattening themselves up day by day by day and don't have a care in the world. But, there's, but eventually they go to slaughter, and that's what you eat if you're a meat eater most times. But in a more serious note, they're, these selfish rich people only incur greater guilt. Christian, if you're not content... Start naming everything you don't deserve. If you're not content, start naming everything you don't deserve. That's a great list to start with. You know, I realize that luxury is a relative term, and it's easy to judge the extravagant examples and justify ourselves, but may we remind ourselves, uh, church, family here in America, that even our poorest poor are richer than most of the world. This isn't a call to some, you know, cultural Marxism or, or communism or anything. That's not the point, but the point is we need to examine ourselves prayerfully. And often, so we don't fall into this trap. I believe the Lord wants us to live simply and manage our resources in light of His eternal purposes. To put our head down, to stay low, to stick together, to live straightforwardly, to live sufficiently. And then finally, here, to live sympathetically, to live sympathetically. Notice verse 6 as we close. He says, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. What is this talking about? Well, some things James is speaking here of literal murder. Others say that he's speaking figuratively or looking at the practical outcome of the rich, cheating the poor out of their wages and thus their daily bread. Well, several points here, but I think the word condemn points to the use of the legal system that these rich people were doing to take advantage of the poor. Perhaps they were bribing judges. Perhaps they were bribing officials or hiring powerful lawyers. The rich were wrongfully taking land, maybe houses, even even fields of grain, and forcing some of these poor people into indentured slavery. I mean, a third, at least a third, according to sources we know, of the Roman Empire were slaves, or at least uh, in some form of bondage. And if you had confronted them, the rich would have protested and said, no, it's legal. Go check the books. It's all good. We didn't break the law, but friend, let us remind ourselves what is technically legal is not always moral or right. What is technically legal is not always moral or right. And what James is saying is while we may never kill someone for the sake of our own financial gain, we should be careful never to hurt others for our own financial gain. Note too that the righteous man did not resist the wicked rich. It's not wrong to take legal means to protect yourself or your assets from a greedy, unprincipled person. You you should stand up, it seems, from Scripture, as as Paul was our example, to to call forth your rights to some degree to protect what God has given you and and, and asked you to to watch over and use for His glory. But in that case, in the case uh, uh, that we see in James, the poor were no match for the rich. And in this life, it often seems the wicked are winning. But James's point is that the judgment day is near when wrongs will be made right. That's why he says, and Pastor Nelson will preach this next week. He says in verse 7 and 8 as we close. He says, be patient, therefore, and notice this again. Look at your text. Pull it out. It's near the sermon. Don't put it up yet. Be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters the first time in two major headings or paragraphs that he has used that word. Be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. Verse 8, you also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. James says, look. Verses 1 through 6 are people who have mishandled their wealth. They have lived senselessly. They have lived, uh, they have lived short sightedly. They have lived self centeredly. And you don't do that, Christian. You wait for God. He will make things right. You be patient. You stay low. You stick together. You keep moving forward straightforwardly. You keep moving forward, living sufficiently. You keep moving forward, living sympathetically for those around you. And if you do that, you do well. There was a story about a businessman who once had uh, an angel visit him. It's a a proverbial pastoral story. And he promised to grant him one wish. And the man asked for a copy of the stock market for a page one year in the future. You know, we have, a, we have a movie of this called Back to the Future, for those uh, remember that one, Michael J. Fox, 1985. As he was studying the numbers, though, on the future exchange and priding himself over how much he would make, his eyes glanced across the page. And his picture was right next to the stock market column, and it was a picture of his obituary. Suddenly, this man's new wealth faded into insignificance in light of what, apparently was going to be his impending death. Church wealth is a good tool if we're careful to use it as stewards for the Lord. But it's a dangerous trap if we adopt a worldly perspective towards it. I encourage you, I exhort you as your pastor, one of your pastors, to examine often your stewardship of the resources that God has entrusted to you. That could be your budget. That could literally be your financial budget. That could be how, how am I using these tools, literally like, like tools, you know, metal tools, and you know, that sort of thing. How, how, how are my cars being stewarded? How's my house being stewarded? Run the list. God, this is your stuff. I want to use it well. Thank you for it. Thank you for the comfort it provides. Thank you for the time-saving it provides. But Lord, how can, can I, in these COVID days, Use it to advance the kingdom, to verbally share the gospel, to call people to repentance, to serve my neighbor, to love my neighbor. Lord, how can I do that? But we remember what Paul said in First Corinthians four two. He said it's required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. That they be found trustworthy. Church, as we close, I just want to encourage you with that word this morning. I again, I want to just thank our our folks who give so faithfully. Uh, you you guys have blessed our socks off in so many ways. and You pray for us in these days ahead. We're working on renovating our our nursery space uh, as we were before the COVID. We're back on that track again. You know, we just got a lot of things to keep our building up to snuff. So whether we're inside and outside for a long time, like we're worshiping now, or whether we're fully able to go inside again one day together, uh, you know, we want to be good stewards of it. God has put us, church, at 7301 Northeast 50th Street across from World to Fund for a reason, for this time, for this place. The mission of Towerview is not dead just simply because churches around the world are having a hard time. God is going to call us to account, church, so you pray for wisdom. How can we best do this? How can we do it to God's glory, grow the saints, and reach people for Jesus Christ? As we close, uh, I've said that like four times, I know, but not Christian, this is for you. If you do not know Jesus Christ, if you do not know the God of glory, if you do not know where, if you died today, as terrible as that would be, where you would spend eternity, would you message us? You know, right below this on YouTube, right below this on Facebook, you can drop us a message right now, and it'll go to somebody's phone who's watching for that. If it's after the fact, you know, we may not get to it right away, but we promise to follow up with you. You can call or text us, 816-368-1330. Ask us. We'd love to meet with you socially distant, maybe with a mask on, whatever. But we want to talk to you because you need to know for sure what it looks like to know Jesus Christ. The only way to heaven is by Jesus. There's no other name under heaven by which we are saved except that of Jesus Christ. He's the way. He's the truth. He's the life. Buddha, Muhammad, Confucius, Zoroaster, Marietta Baker, Joseph Smith. Whatever religious figures out there has nothing on this Jesus. He's the only one that rose from the dead. Therefore, he's the only one that can save you. If you're not sure what that means, I don't want to confuse you, but I want to tell you a day of judgment is coming, friend, and you will stand before this God. Are you ready for that time? Are you ready for that time together? Let's pray as we close. Father, as we come before you, we are thankful for your word. Your word examines us. It encourages us. It exhorts us, Lord. Sometimes a body slams us against the mat, Lord, because it just shows us how um, sinful we really are. But Father, through it all is, is wrapped around it your love and your grace and your mercy, which was finally and fully revealed at the coming some 2,000 years ago of your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, as we talk through these things, I, I just pray for everyone watching this, everyone who will hear this you know, fully recorded or in, in brief at, at our services inside and outside on Sunday morning. Father, be lifted high. I pray for our church that you help us to steward these things well. That, Father, if a million dollars was dropped in our lap, it would do nothing more than just encourage us to build the kingdom of God. Not the kingdom of Tower View, but the kingdom of God. And I thank you that that is our direction. Father, be lifted high. Thank you for Jesus. Praying for our non-Christian friends. Draw them to you. We pray these things today in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless, guys. Thank you so much. Have a great day.